Most important question of the morning. Did you like the new communion bread? Yes or no? Okay, there's lots of different options out there if you didn't know. And we went with a new option this time around. So, so we'll see if we stick with it. But again, good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us today. We're happy that you've chosen to worship here with us. Now, the passage that we read last week, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, may have been a little bit hard to swallow, hopefully unlike that new communion bread. But as Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, Jesus wields a sharp two-edged sword and threatens judgment. Again, tough to swallow. Some of the Christians in Pergamum had been faithful witnesses. One had even died for the name of Christ, and those people are rightly commended. But far too many within the church in Pergamum had fallen into false teaching, idolatry, and sin. And that is why Jesus threatens judgment. Now, of course, we prefer to picture Jesus as meek, mild, and gentle. And he really, truly is all of those things. But he is also holy. And he demands repentance. And he demands repentance from that church in Pergamum before it's too late. Now, our takeaways from that passage were relatively simple. If Jesus took the problem of false teaching and the sin it leads to so seriously in that church, then we should take the problem of false teaching seriously in our church as well. And then the other takeaway is that faithful, faithfulness to Jesus' name will be difficult, but it will also be worth it. Because Jesus promises those who endure that they will eat heavenly bread in the presence of God. But today we move from the church in Pergamum to the church in Theatira. And we'll see some of the same themes this morning that we saw last Sunday, but perhaps in more detail. And if we thought last week's passage was difficult, then this week will be difficult too. Maybe even more so. But maybe that's just more evidence of our need to hear it. One commentator writes this. The longest and most difficult of the seven letters in Revelation is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the seven cities. So what can we learn today from this seemingly insignificant church that we didn't learn last week? I think we might be surprised. So open up to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. I'll start reading in Revelation chapter 2, and then we'll pray. And to the angel of the church in Theatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. 
And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the reminder of communion. Thank you that we have the joy and the privilege and the reminder of what your son has done for us, who your son is. And Father, I pray that that remembrance would shape what we do and what we say and how we live, not just here on Sunday mornings, but every day throughout the week. And Father, be with us as we continue to read these words. From Revelation. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to that church way back then and what your spirit might be saying to our church today. Give us humility, give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us an eager desire to know you better. You reveal yourself to us through your word, you reveal yourself to us through your son. Father, I pray that we would truly treasure and appreciate and value the joy and the privilege of knowing you and calling you our Father. Thank you that we can do this because of your Son's death and resurrection, that we have no right to call you our Father in and of ourselves, but because of what Christ did for us, we can come to you as Father. We can approach your throne with confidence. We can approach your throne with joy. And so, Father, remind us of that this morning. Again, be with us as we read these words, and may our worship be honoring to you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after Jesus introduces himself to the church in Theatira, he gives a list of their accolades. He commends them for their wonderful showings of love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Now, if you put all those together, it's safe to say that the church in Theatira has a pretty impressive resume. If you're good at love, faith, service, and patient endurance, you're probably a pretty good church. But what's even better than their past accomplishments is the continuing growth that they've displayed. They are bearing more and more fruit in these areas over time. And that's why Jesus says that their latter works exceed the first. This church is growing and maturing. Now, so far, so good. Compared to the three that have come before it, Theatira sounds like a well-rounded, perhaps even model, church. What could Jesus possibly have against a church like this? Well, sadly, for all that they've done so well, their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance, for all of that, the church in Theatira is guilty of much the same sin as the church in Pergamum. They too have fallen into the trap of false teaching, leading to sexual immorality and idolatry. 
Last week, Jesus compared the false teachers in Pergamum to Balaam, the wicked, pagan, false prophet from the book of Numbers. But here he compares the false teachers in Theatira to Jezebel, the ruthless and evil wife of Israel's king Ahab. Now, considering that Jesus references the Old Testament in both of these passages, it's safe to say that the problem of false teachers leading God's people astray, it's not anything new. But let's read more about Ahab and Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. We read there. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, an earlier king who was wicked in his own right, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and worshipped Baal and served him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. If you wanted to sum that passage up, you could simply say that Ahab was a horrible, horrible king. He married an idol worshiper. He worshipped false gods himself. He encouraged Israel to do the same. He allowed the city of Jericho to be rebuilt, even though God had said earlier that anyone who did that would be cursed. And to top it all off, Ahab even condoned child sacrifice to take place in his kingdom. Ahab was a godless villain. He would go down as arguably the worst king in all of scripture. But Ahab didn't get there on his own. In fact, if there's anyone who would have given Ahab a run for his money in terms of wickedness, it would have been his lovely wife, Jezebel. In chapter 19, Jezebel, not Ahab, Jezebel, makes it her life's goal to kill the prophet Elijah. In chapter 21, Jezebel goads Ahab, encourages Ahab to frame and execute an innocent man. All so they can take his land to build a garden. These were evil, evil people. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. Whom Jezebel his wife incited. Ahab's legacy was one of sin and idolatry. But if Ahab ever received an award at the annual ceremony for wicked kings, the first person he would thank in his acceptance speech was his wife, Jezebel. She was so awful 
that during his first day on the job, one of Israel's later kings had Jezebel thrown from a tower and her body was left behind and eaten by dogs. Talk about a rough way to go. R-U-F-F way to go. Now, of course, by the time that Jesus speaks to the church in Theatira, in the book of Revelation, by the time we get to our current passage, Jezebel had gone to the dogs a long time ago. But even though Jezebel died almost a thousand years before Revelation was written, Jezebel's legacy lived on. It lived on through the false teachers like the ones in Theatira, eager to lead God's people into sin. Jezebels were still around, enticing Christians to get in bed with the false gods. These false teachers were given multiple opportunities to repent, and yet time and time again, they refused. So Jesus says he will make an example of these false teachers and their followers. They will be punished not just after they die, but they will be punished right then and there. And everyone around who sees this will know that Jesus looks at both the heart and the mind. They will know that Jesus is exceedingly gracious and exceedingly kind, but they'll also know that his grace will only be spurned and only be mocked for so long. Now, this passage started off so well, didn't it? It's amazing to think, and to be honest, a little bit scary to think, that a church capable of such great good, with so much going for it, with so much to commend, that they can go so far off the rails in one area and bring God's judgment upon itself. But that is the danger Of a willingness to tolerate false teaching. That is the danger of a willingness to tolerate all the sin that follows it. That's the danger of allowing modern day Balaam's and modern day Jezebel's a foothold within a body of believers. If you give false teachers an inch in your church, they will take a mile. And then one day you will look up. And all the good, all the love, all the faith, all the service, all the patient endurance that your church has done, it will all be quickly overshadowed and invalidated and undone. Just like that. But in spite of the serious charges leveled against this church, Jesus' challenge to the faithful, his encouragement to the faithful, those who haven't followed Jezebel, His words are simple. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast what you have until I come. Just hang on. As we saw in the city of Smyrna, both violent and nonviolent persecution were a real threat for Christians in that day and age. False teachers seemed to be waiting around every corner. Sin and temptation were constantly crouching at the door. And the altars of the false gods always looked so inviting. But Jesus tells the faithful, hold fast. Hang on. Don't let go of what you have. It'll be hard. 
but it will not be in vain. Because one day the faithful will rule with Christ in eternity over a new heaven and a new earth. And while the false teachers may seem arrogant now, they will get what's coming to them the same way Jezebel did. I was talking to someone this week and I mentioned that one way this sermon series has been particularly challenging is the area of application. What I mean by that is if a preacher is willing to just leave the text behind, you can go all kinds of crazy directions with application. But finding meaningful application for believers and churches today, while also being faithful to what Revelation does and doesn't say, that hasn't been easy these past few weeks. But I think this week is a little bit different. There are two main areas of application that I think are worth talking about from this text. The first may be a little bit more obvious than the second, but they're both very good and very important. So application number one, how do we identify and avoid modern day false teachers? Because even though Jezebel was put in God's doghouse a long time ago, her legacy survived in Theatira. And her legacy still lives on through false teachers today. Well, I think this passage gives us a few clues. One clue to identifying modern day false teachers is this. Jesus says that Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess. What's so important about that phrase? Well, in scripture, a person only became a prophet if God explicitly called them. You didn't just wake up one day and decide to pursue a career in prophecy because it paid well or because it offered good health insurance. The false teachers in Theatira, the people calling themselves prophets, they weren't called by God. They called themselves. God didn't commission them into his service. They weren't affirmed by good, godly leaders of God's people like John, the author of Revelation. They weren't endorsed by a solid, reputable body of believers. They simply called themselves. They appointed themselves to positions of teaching and authority. They gave themselves titles that only God can give. And the same thing often happens today. If someone fancies themselves a prophet, an apostle, a teacher, a leader, an influencer, but they haven't been called by God to that role, they haven't been endorsed or affirmed by solid, godly, reputable fellow believers, then beware. Now you might say to yourself, well, isn't being called by God awfully subjective? How can we really say whether or not someone has actually been called by God? Well, that brings us to another clue in the text when it comes to identifying false teachers. The text tells us that their lives are often marked by public, unashamed, and undeniable sin. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. A prophet called by God did and said what God told him to do and say. Meanwhile, a false teacher's words and deeds directly contradict what God commands. Now, it's true that Scripture isn't always clear about everything. 
Sometimes we have to use wisdom and discernment and should give people the benefit of the doubt before we hastily label them false teachers. But it's also true that there are actions in Scripture that no matter how you slice them are defined as sin. There are beliefs and doctrines that a person must hold to be a Christian. So if someone intentionally and consistently contradicts Scripture in those areas, they just might deserve to be labeled a false teacher. And then a third clue when it comes to identifying false teachers, a refusal of authority, a refusal of accountability. Now, again, these false teachers called and appointed themselves. They had no one above them to answer to, or at least they thought. And Jesus repeatedly calls them to repent, repeatedly gives them the opportunity to submit and obey. But they refuse over and over and over. And the same thing still happens today. False teachers often resist any attempt to hold them accountable, much less an attempt to call them to repentance. So those are helpful ways to identify false teachers, but what's our strategy for avoiding them? What should Theatira have done that they didn't do? Zero tolerance is what it comes down to. Again, that might sound harsh, but we're not talking about the well-meaning Christian who makes an honest, innocent mistake in something they teach. We're not talking about a new believer who's still learning many of the ins and outs of what Scripture teaches. We're talking about a person who appoints themselves a teacher rather than being called by God. We're talking about a person whose life clearly exposes that they do not honor Christ. We're talking about a person who refuses to be held accountable and refuses to repent repeatedly. For that, we have zero tolerance. That kind of false teacher should have been given no quarter in Theatira. And that kind of false teacher should be given no quarter here. So that's one takeaway. How do we identify and avoid false teachers? But then the second application is the one that's a little less obvious. And that's this. Satan is a real and active enemy of God's people. He is a real and active enemy of God's people. Now, it's not very obvious because his name only came up once in this passage. And he hasn't been the center of attention so far in Revelation chapter 2. But Satan will take center stage later in the book. In Revelation chapter 12, there's this incredible passage about Satan in a battle with God and his angels, fighting against God, yet ultimately being defeated. Now, we haven't dedicated much time to Satan in this sermon series, but he's been lurking in the background the entire time. He got some attention in Smyrna. His name was mentioned in Pergamum. He's associated with the false teachers here in Theatira, and he'll be mentioned again in Philadelphia. Satan is a real and active enemy of God's people. But like in so many things, we Christians often resort to two bad extremes in our understanding of Satan. Bad extreme number one is that we give Satan far too much credit. 
We act as though Satan is behind every form of trouble that we ever face. If we stub our toe, then Satan must have moved the bed. If our car breaks down, Satan must have been messing around under the hood. But we shouldn't give Satan too much credit. He can still cause believers harm. He can still wreak havoc in our world. But he's nowhere near as powerful as God. And he never has been. Satan still hangs around. But he's fighting a losing battle. In a very real way, he already lost the war at the death and resurrection of Christ. So don't give Satan too much credit, even though he is a real and active enemy of God's people. But then there's the other extreme that we sometimes go to with Satan. The other bad extreme is that we completely ignore him. While we shouldn't give him too much credit, we also shouldn't pretend that Satan doesn't exist. As Peter says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. Paul says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Scripture identifies him as a liar, an accuser, a murderer, an adversary. He exists. And even though his ultimate defeat is already certain, Satan still opposes you. And he still opposes God. And one of the most foolish things that we Christians can ever do is tell ourselves that Satan doesn't exist. In fact, Satan would like nothing more than that. Now, of course, people might accuse you of being old-fashioned, outdated, uncivilized, or unenlightened if you believe this silly sort of thing. But Jesus does. And I assure you, you are not smarter, you are not wiser, You are not more enlightened than Jesus. Now you put it all together and it all sounds kind of frightening, doesn't it? A church that appears to be so healthy, growing in love, faith, service, and patient endurance, is actually inviting God's judgment upon itself. And it's all because they were willing to tolerate false teachers and willing to tolerate the sins that follow them. And we have this challenge of recognizing and avoiding these false teachers, these modern-day Jezebels. But on top of that, we also have to remember the other enemy lurking behind the scenes, that ancient serpent himself, Satan. Again, you put it all together, and it all sounds pretty frightening. But remember that none of these threats, none of them match up to Christ. Jesus described himself as having eyes like a flaming fire. The false teachers can't hold a candle to him. He described himself as having feet like burnished bronze. Well, compared to Christ, Satan doesn't have a leg to stand on. And one day he will come. The false teachers will be judged. And Satan will be defeated once and for all. And in the meantime... As we wait, we are challenged to hold fast what we have. We reminded that their time is limited. And that Christ's victory and our victory by the blood of the Lamb, by his death and resurrection, Christ's victory and our victory are secure. Let's pray.
Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the reminders that you give us in this passage. There are false teachers out there, and Father, I pray that we would recognize them. I pray that we would avoid them. I pray that we wouldn't be led astray. And Father, I also pray that we would be reminded that we have an enemy. He might not always be obvious, and he's not nearly as powerful as you are, but he is an enemy nonetheless. And so I pray that we would be on our guard. I pray that we wouldn't give him too much credit. I pray that we also wouldn't take him seriously. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we try to navigate this world, as we try to hold fast onto what we have until you come. It will be challenging. At times we may slip up, but we know that you hold us secure. You hold us firmly in your hands. You've given us everything we need to endure the challenges that we will face in our faith. And so, Father, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray that we would be reminded of your power and your glory and your grace and your strength and your holiness. I pray that you would find us faithful when you return, in spite of the various challenges that we might face. I pray that we would grow in all the areas that the church in Theatira excelled, that we would grow in love and faith and service and patient endurance. But I pray that we would learn from their example, that we would avoid the same sin that they committed. Father, thank you that you don't give up on us, that even when we stumble, even when we fall, even when we're hard-hearted and thick-skulled, you love us. You call us to repent. You remind us of the truth. Thank you for doing that today. And Father, I pray that we would respond accordingly. We love you. We honor you. It's by your son's death and resurrection that we call you our father. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.